Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files, venture capitalist Kirsten Green. Time Magazine just named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. She's the founder of Forerunner Ventures and made big bets on brands like Warby Parker, Birchbox, Jet, Bonobos, and Dollar Shave Club. We've never invested in a male. We've never invested in a female. We've just invested in the right entrepreneur. She's a rare female voice in a sector dominated by men. How she sees the rise of Amazon and the future of retail. Also, her commitment to diversity in Silicon Valley and her candid take on sexism there. Kirsten Green, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Poppy, for having me. Time Magazine naming you one of the 100 most influential people of the year. Wow. What did that feel like? That felt really surreal. You know, something that just totally wasn't expected at all. Um, so it was, it was pretty fun. Not just mm-hmm. fun. I mean, <laughs> what, what an honor for you professionally in an industry where women are not the norm in terms right. of being in any sort of uh, mass at the top uh, in venture capital. What did that acknowledgement, um, what does that acknowledgement mean to you? Yeah, you know, I think it's um, I think it's really important for the industry. Um, I think that it is recognizing that the conversation about the lack of women in investing, um, the need for more diversity, is getting elevated and getting yeah. more attention. And I think it was an opportunity to kind of celebrate that there are more women um, rising to the ranks and being successful mm-hmm. in the category. I think people you know, looking at new fields or trying to understand what the opportunity set is need to have success stories to look up to. Sure. And um, we spend a lot of time talking about the challenges. And I think this was a moment to kind of highlight that there, are, there is some progress happening. There are some, there are some women that are finding success in this mm-hmm. field mm-hmm. and that that's something that other people can aspire to. And that you know, felt really proud to be part of that narrative. You should be. Um, let's give people just a quick lens into what you do as the founder of Forerunner Ventures, uh, a firm you started without having worked in venture <laughs> capital. You have made so many prescient investments. Birchbox, Jet, Dollar Shave Club, Hotel Tonight, Bonobos. You see what others don't very early on. How would you describe what you do each and every day? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, our, our reason for being in the ecosystem as venture investors is to fund kind of the biggest, boldest, newest ideas that are looking to break new ground. And I think part of, um, part of doing that is kind of, you know, having, having a pulse on where the opportunity set is moving, what's changing in the ecosystem, and really thinking about the person in front of you and what their passion is, what they want to build and having a point of view on whether or not that's possible. I should know, yeah. Jet just sold to Walmart for $3.3 billion. Yep. Unilever bought Dollar Shave Club for a billion dollars. You just shot up to number 12 among the top 50 venture capitalists in the world. What do you look at that you think makes these companies special? Why do you get it right so much more than you get it wrong? 
I hope that's true. Poppy, it is true. I, you just look at the evidence. So <laughs> I mean, that that's a big question, and I think that um, you know, one part of it is that I've always believed through my career in the power of focus, and I've kind of dedicated myself to understanding what's going on with the consumer, what's happening with their discretionary shopping patterns and habits, how companies are um, playing into that, guiding it or reacting to it, and. Um, and I think marrying that qualitative side with some real discipline around business models mm -hmm. and understanding you know, that businesses are here to, to, to sell products, to make a, to make a profit, um, and to create jobs, and, and making sure that you have a business that's viable in that regard, too. And marrying those two together, um, I think, has you know, been kind of, a, obviously, a, it's been a focus of, of how we've prioritized our decision making. So we're going to talk team. about some of those specific examples of those companies yeah. and dig into them a little bit more in a moment. But a company I didn't mention, Glossier, yeah. a company close to your heart that yeah. you really have helped build, not only invest in, but the founder, Emily Weiss, wrote about you uh, in time when you, when you were honored with this. And she wrote, she gets what women want, which is also good for business, given that we control the majority of household spending. I mean, hello, we've known that for a long right. time. <laughs> women control like 70 or 80% yep. of household spending. Why is it such a revelation all of a sudden that, you know, I think people are finally getting it that, oh, yeah, women might actually know what other women want. Right. I know. It seems like an overdue observation. Um, and it is an <laughs> overdue observation. Right. But, you know, we're starting to have these conversations at an increasing rate and recognizing that. And there is, a, is an aha moment in that. Like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Yet when you look at the numbers, um, according to, to PitchBook, which tracks a lot of this, VC firms invested $58.2 billion in U.S. companies with all male founders in 2016. But women founders received just $1.46 billion in funding last year. If the data proves otherwise that women are good at this, why is the funding so off? Yeah, I mean, it's, an, it's you know, there's really no good excuse for that kind of disparity in the funding. Um, and I think that, um, you know, again, part of why this conversation is getting elevated is that people are kind of waking up to that reality. Mm -hmm. um, why has it been so off for so long? I mean, I think that, you know, in, in some ways, um, there's probably several layers to this answer. Yeah. One of them is, is that, again, in the venture, in the venture ecosystem, these are, you know, we're looking to fund these ambitious businesses that have outsized kind of growth opportunities. And I think a founder that tends to be successful in getting something off the ground is somebody who is not afraid to own their ambition, is, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, um, displays real leadership and confidence and is willing to kind of ask for what they need and what they want. And maybe as women, we haven't been doing enough of that. Asking enough maybe for what we Maybe we haven't been doing enough want, of that with real, you know, with real authority and conviction around what we're doing. There, there's and, also this issue of pattern matching. Yep. Right? I mean, do you see that as a reality? That is, you know, male investors yeah. being more I mean, that willing was, and comfortable to invest in someone that actually right. looks like Right, and that was like going to get to my second point, yeah. right, which is, there is there is a reality to that. You know, I think that we're in a business of taking big risks for the kind of businesses we've just described. And um, one way to mitigate this risk, and maybe it's subconsciously, is to go with something that you can relate to as a business or you can relate to the founder in a personal way. Mm -hmm. And because so much of the investment decision making has been held in, in male hands, that has, I, I think, undoubtedly, that's contributed to the landscape. So it's this combination 
of we need to have more women contributing to the investment decisions. We need to have more women founders stepping up to kind of own their own story and, and ask for what they want and tell the success stories mm -hmm. and start really, you know, building the confidence that these stories are out there. It shouldn't be such a surprise to people that like, you know, a, a woman like Emily Weiss founded a company that's, you know, soaring to success right now. Like, we need yeah. to tell more of those and build confidence around that. It's a really important point, the way you've coupled them together. There's an onus and a responsibility on we as women and on men. And on men. Yep. It, it's, on, it's, on, it's, on, it's on all of us. But you have said, Kirsten, that being a woman in investing has been an advantage for you. Why? Um... I think that it's important um, in, your, in your career, in anybody's career, to kind of really understand what your strengths and your weaknesses are and play into your strengths and find out how to kind of, you know, get other, other um, means to support you in your areas of, of, of improvement or need for improvement. And as a strength, like, I did lean on this fact that I had a connection to the customer, that I had a point of view yeah. on what was, you know, what was a good product, what was a good shopping experience. It didn't come all from my own ideas. I, I listened to other people. I mean, early on when I started, I was in my in my 20s, and I was following teens, teen retailers, and I could I could kind of lean on my own preferences sure. and tastes. Today, you know, as investors and, and entrepreneurs, we're largely focused on the millennial consumer or increasingly the Gen Z consumer. I'm clearly not that consumer anymore, but I think I've learned throughout time to like pay attention and listen to other people to take in input and of a mosaic of information and kind of use that as part of the process and then I think that's been invaluable. So take us back to the beginning then, right? Um, you're in your 20s and you are starting at an investment bank, this mm -hmm. is back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. A ton was happening in tech and in retail. It was the rise of the mall and big box retailers. You're the youngest person on your team, so you went to the mall. I'm the youngest person on my team. You know, I don't have I, I, I don't have experience to kind of necessarily lean on to differentiate my opinion or my perspective. And I'm looking for ways to contribute. And I thought to myself, well, I'm closer to the customer as it relates to these businesses, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make it my business to understand what's going on with this customer and bring that bring that conversation into the investment kind of you know criteria. So what were you doing at the mall? So it was never what. Well, it was really about kind of going to the same malls every week okay. and tracking patterns. So it wasn't about going to one mall and making one observation, right. but it was about going to the same four malls every Friday, the same hours, and really thinking about like how many cars were in the park lot, yeah. how, many, um, how many people were in the food court versus how many people were in the stores. Was the product being handled in the stores or was it kind of like nobody had touched it and just walked by and knocked on it? Were people having shopping bags or not having shopping bags? And how did that trend change from throughout the month? And trying to kind of then incorporate that into like, hmm, what's going on this yeah. month with sales? I mean, it is, a, it is a sector that reports sales every month. So when you're a public market investor, there's a data point to constantly kind of anchor your thesis around. So if I could name a brand that was like defined my teen years, yeah. it would be Abercrombie. Sure. And it did so well and it was just soaring. And then you come out and you make a pretty gutsy call on Abercrombie. Tell me about that. We started seeing lots of lots more markdowns, not as many people in the stores, not as many, you know, not as many bags being held, not as much kind of not as not the same buzzy feeling. You can kind of walk into a place yeah. and feel the energy or the lack of energy. Yeah. Um, and when something has been propelled by so much of it, like even a little change in it 
is pretty, it can be pretty noticeable if you're paying attention. So when you are approached now by these companies, I mean, fast forward, you had that part of your career. And then actually, before I move on to that, you had that part of your career. And then you decide, I'm going to try my hand in venture capital. You were too nervous, right, to invest other people's money at first? Is that right? Well, I think what really happened, you know, I spent spent 10 years essentially in the public markets. I saw this cycle play out going from kind of upstart companies that were riding the wave of the malls to the narrative changing to we overstored the country while Amazon and eBay became big companies. You know, everybody better kind of revisit their cost structure. And I think as an investor at that point, like it was, you know, as much about kind of financial engineering and understanding kind of where you could get a few more points of margin than it was about anything else. And it's yeah. harder to have a differentiated view in that context. And mm-hmm. it wasn't as interesting to me. And it struck me that, you know, once one cycle had played out, there would be another one on the horizon. And um, I think this is, you know, 2004-ish. It wasn't clear at the time what that was going to be. There yeah. was a lot of buzz about kind of the rise of online and the impact that that might have. I think having been a student of consumers and watching why and how they shop, um, I was unconvinced that like one single way of looking at um, shopping in a discretionary environment was the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, Amazon is, you know, from, from the beginning has delivered on their value proposition of kind of convenience and, and choice and, and price value. But there's a lot of other things that go into somebody's decision sure. to part with their money, um, particularly, again, in this discretionary category. And so, you know, I kind of really started to play around with, like, well, what does the next generation of companies look like? Mm. And I'd like to take my 10 years of experience and really be part of that. Um, and I think thinking that way sort of meant de facto I had to go early stage. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what what that was all about, what that was all about. You know, at that point, like, I had a view on the sector. I had, you know, I had 10 years of experience to see some, you know, big macro cycle play out. I'd been involved with some companies that were early and kind of had a pulse on, I think, what was hot and what was new. Mm -hmm. But what did it mean to, like, really look at it at an idea and understand whether it was viable? Like, how how would you understand whether that was the right person to to, to kind of take it from start to something? Um, So there was a lot of learning I needed to do, and I recognized that. And so I allowed myself some time to kind of do some learning. I had never done that. I had gotten out of college. I went straight to work. I'd been heads down, working hard the whole time. And I thought maybe I would, you know, take a couple of months, meet some people, do some learning, and find a place to, to go work. Is that what you did? Did you quit your job? I did. I and quit my job without a job. Spent, which took was, some learning months? I took some learning Those months. Those are scary. Those were so scary. I think in my mind, I always thought I would go to business school. Um, I had kind of that window of time, if you will, had passed while I was working because I was really engaged in what I was doing Mm -hmm. and loving it and having some success with it. So I didn't go to business school. And when I took this moment to pause and think about, I spent a decade, what is the next decade or two decades going to look like? I allowed myself to have my own kind of business school moment, if you will. And I, you know, I embraced that, that time with, um, you know, it wasn't time off. It was, I needed to have X amount of meetings yeah. a day or a week or whatever to make it productive. And, you know, it was really great. People were, people were good to me. I got, you know, I had people who were generous and made introductions. And a lot of people sat down and gave 30 minutes of their time to share nice. why they had been successful in their career or where they thought the sector was going or where they thought there were opportunities. It was really nice. It was really nice. And I try to keep that in mind now when I get busy. It's hard. You know, there's a lack of time. But it's important to kind of, That's you know, true. give some of that back. And... Um, 
And some of those conversations turned into consulting work. So yeah. I started to kind of like roll up my sleeves and do some learning. And I, I thought, okay, I don't want to be a consultant, but this is kind of good because like I need to be thoughtful about what I do. I'm mm-hmm. in my 30s now. I want to be deliberate about the move that I pick, where I go work. I'd like to go somewhere where I can like really make a career out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, fast forward, like a couple of years had gone by. I was busy. I was doing a lot of learning. Um, and I thought, oh, geez, I kind of have a consulting business now. That's not necessarily what, what I, I meant to have. I, wasn't gonna do I really want to be an investor. And I think now I've got, I've got enough point of view that's rooted in some experience where I, I can start making some investments. The first one was in a, in a company called Metro Park, which was founded by one of the um, former founders of a company that I'd covered, Hot Topic, when it was public. So and so, oh, uh, it was a good store. It was a great it. story. And, you know, then financial cycles happen. There are, there are so many things, there are certain things in business that are in your control. And as an early stage company, yeah. you've got to own those and you've got to make them work for yourself. And there are a lot of things that are out of your control. And I think the only thing that you can really do to navigate that is to be nimble. And once you've kind of gotten to a place where you've lost some of that ability and you get caught in that moment, it can be really mm-hmm. tough. And 2008 was that time period. You know, I entered Absolutely. 2008 with a handful of kind of pr- private investments, you know, to, to fill the gap there. I felt like I was ready to start making investments and taking some ownership for some companies, but I wasn't in a position where I felt like I had like all the workings of a thesis to go in and say, you know, give me a blind pool of money and let yep. me at it. So I really kind of used this moment to market the companies and to play an active role, get investment dollars on an individual basis and really, you know, take an active role on the, in the companies, whether that was on the board or sometimes I had a CFO card or a marketing card or whatever, but I was just trying to kind of continue the leg of learning. And in 2008, I felt like, okay, I've got, I've, got a good, I've got a good little portfolio of companies. I'm pretty excited about this. I can pull a story together. And then the financial markets happened. Was, is that you know? the time? You've talked about, you know, one of your biggest professional failures was the company Now. Is yeah. that how you pronounce it? N-A-U. N-A-U. And this is like big deal, big build up, and yet crash, and then CNN comes calling, right? It the was a start really calling. scary day. It was a really, you know, the whole thing was just, it was... You know, it was an exciting company to be involved with. There were executives from prominent companies who'd had, you know, really successful careers. It was a big idea. It was bold. I'd been looking for somebody that was looking to do something truly different in retail. And this was the first thing I saw. It was the idea of, like, small studio stores, less inventory in the stores, courting the customer into the store to develop an experience around the product and the brand, but then get them to buy online and turn them into kind of, you know, really the holistic shopping channel. Um, And and the product was revolutionary, too. It had an element of kind of um, uh, recycled and and sort of where now, where into the evening, where to work, all of that. Sounds like it might work now better than then. It it might have. You know, I I think, again, to the point of, like, the things that you have as your advantage as a startup company, the the only real advantage you actually have is the ability to be nimble, and you don't want to lose that. This was definitely a concept where they went big out of the gate. There was a lot of moving pieces. I think today I might have thought about kind of layering in those steps one by one a little bit and allowing your business, your team, and your expense structure to scale more carefully with what you were doing. But, you know, this company was... um, Again, had senior leadership that had experience, was able to raise the capital, um, and we'd had a ton of success operating for the first year and a half or two years. And, you know, it's hard to know if it would have played out differently, but in this story, in this narrative, 2008 happened. 
and we got caught in a moment where we could not get the capital in the door. We couldn't get the attention of investors that we were in conversation mm -hmm. with because they were stuck worrying about Yahoo and other businesses that were, you know, cratering. Sure. Um, and uh, yes, and so we had to file for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And actually, it was the um, the week after we'd just been named to like top ten innovative companies, and we're covered in that light. So it was a story. I mean, otherwise, you know, why would CNN call you about a little upstart? But there was high profile well, people involved in the company. For different reasons. For Anyways, very different um, reasons. but I had somebody. You know, I think I've told you this story before. I had somebody who um, who had who had kind of, you know, who, who had taken some time to teach me some things along the way, and I had a lunch date with him scheduled, and I showed up in tears, probably, you know, sunglasses, eyes swollen, like, oh, yeah. here's what happened, and he kind of, you know, asked me some really critical questions, and I wasn't quite sure, I'm like, do I need this at that moment? But then he said to me, you know what, next time you have a company, like, I'll invest. And I was like, I said, you know, you've learned something. You're de demonstrating that you learned something. You know, continue to take this chapter and, and learn more from it, mm -hmm. how things unfold over the next you know, couple did, of months. And you did. Be nimble. And I did. I did. So it was, it was you know, very, uh, it, it was a hard moment. But in the end, I think it turned out to be a very positive thing for me personally for a learning experience. You've said, when I want to do something, forget convention, I'm going to find a way to do it. So talk about how you did it after that failure. All, I mean, this long list of companies from Bonobos, Warby Parker, Jet, Birchbox, I mean, now Reese Witherspoon's Draper James. Talk, talk about... So now was a failure, right? And so I think part of going back was understanding, like, why, you know, and, and, and the operating lessons and the time in the moment lesson and kind of taking those and marrying that with sort of the, the thesis that I'd been developing throughout the course of the last several years and getting more clarity around the marriage between a good investment thesis yep. and a good early stage company thesis. And I continued to meet with entrepreneurs. I think my eye was getting sharper towards that. And in 2009, you know, end of 2009, early 2010, I met the two teams from Birchbox and Warby Parker. And I think it was just that moment where I had an, I had an aha moment. They delivered an aha moment to me, which is these are the kinds of founders, the kinds of company ideas, the kinds of bold missions that I was looking for. Changing if people don't know what they are, although they should. Yeah. But changing very established sort of sectors, you know, how and where we buy our makeup, and face, face products and end for Warby Parker, you know, challenging like lens crafters, right. these big behemoths that really haven't changed their model in decades. And so, I think part of, you know, I mean, part of also what Warby Parker was really always setting out to do and has done a tremendous job doing is focusing on customer experience and bringing customer experience to a category that otherwise didn't have that category mm -hmm. and, and brand to it. Both of them changed the experience. Um, you get a lot of pitches. What do you look for when, how much do you look at the person as well as the product and the idea, right? Because you're going to have to, you don't just give them your money. I mean, you got, you no, it's a partnership. These people. It's a long-term partnership. <laughs> how much is it about the person? Because, you know, Warren Buffett talks a lot about investing in companies in large part because of who leads them. Yes. And how nice those people are. Yes. And how important is that to you? It's incredibly important. You know, I think that, again, you reference it's a long-term partnership. It's a long-term partnership. Um, you are looking, you, you are thinking about joining someone's dream to be part of their dream. You want to be set up for success in that partnership. 
Um, some of that is, you know, what do you bring to contribute to the conversation from a business perspective and an experience perspective? Some of it is how you relate to each other, how you might collaborate together. Is that going to be successful? Is that going to be additive to the formula? Mm -hmm. You know, it's really hard to get a business off the ground. It's really hard to be a founder. You, you need to kind of make all of the opportunities you can work for you, and your investor is one of them. Like, is that a positive relationship? Is that a relationship that's mm -hmm. adding something to the table? With Bonobos, which was one of your earlier yeah. investments, mm -hmm. you, uh, I believe, said, okay, I'm going to do this, but let me be involved, right? Let me learn, teach me. I did. I said to Andy, um, you know, I, I don't have money to lose right now at this point in my life. <laughs> I, I never do as an investor, but I really didn't then. And I said, but I do have money to learn. And what I want more than anything out of this small personal investment is to, to, to learn with you. Um, whether that means I can be involved or whether that means you are telling me what's going on, but that's what I'm really looking for. And I, you know, he said, he thought about it for, you know, however long, a minute or two and said, yeah, I can do that. And at that point, you know, I, I didn't know him well enough to know whether he would honor that, and yeah. he really did. And it was, you know, incredibly um, impactful part of my learning experience mm -hmm. to, be on, to be involved in that journey. Talking about Amazon and the sort of where retail goes from here or where we are, you've called Jeff Bezos of Amazon a genius. What makes him so special? Yeah, he started, I mean, who knows, maybe the, maybe the path that he's on was his idea from the beginning, but he started with a particular idea, a category where he saw an opportunity to approach it differently and had a few guiding principles and delivered on that to the consumer on a consistent basis. And the reality is, is that when you make it very clear what your value proposition is mm -hmm. and you deliver on that for the consumer, that's a very strong place to build loyalty. And I think that that early seed allowed a relationship to form between Amazon and, and, and consumers that said, okay, I'm comfortable buying books from you. What else can you sell me? I like this experience. And he has you know, stepped into that at every moment. And it's been a combination of stepping into it or, and guiding it. Um, and you know now at this point, like you know, if if somebody is you know kind of thinking critically about retail and about maybe the challenges of a, mm -hmm. of of being an upstart in the company and going to kind of compete, if you will, with a company like Amazon, this question comes up a lot. Like, you know, how could you possibly build a, can a company in the world of Amazon? But, so, but you do. That is actually what your companies do. Sometimes there will be partnerships with Am yeah. Amazon in terms of distribution, et cetera. But. I guess I, I wonder your read on the future of retail, yep. especially startups uh, in the world of Amazon, and, and also what that means for the future of malls. I mean, I drove by a mall in Omaha this weekend. Right. The, half of the, it was half empty. A strip mall was half empty. Two of the anchor stores were gone. Right. I mean, what are we looking at? <laughs> we're looking at, I mean, really a, a complete reorganization of the retail ecosystem. And that's everything from the mall and the shopping experience to the back end of the business. And the reinvention started with Amazon. Um, and I think since then, it's in large part been consumer-led, as we've, as consumers, been increasingly comfortable with technology and getting input from other things. It's reshaping the path to purchase. Mm -hmm. And that's impacting what people expect out of a retail experience. And at the same time, you know, I think that um, the, that the businesses that exist today that are large and at scale have legacy infrastructure systems that unfortunately are more of a liability than an asset right now. And that's really challenging, particularly at a time when things are moving so fast. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're changing in 
And it matters a lot for cities. I'm from Minneapolis, yep. and our, the big, sort of what used to be Dayton's downtown and then turned into Macy's, you know, Marshall Fields yeah. and Macy's, it's now gone. I mean, they com they completely shut down. And this is sort of an anchor of our right. downtown. And it really impacts cities it and does. how cities think about their future. Yeah. And I think that can be a little scary right now because there's yeah. not like a clear answer. Like, yeah. you know, there was a clear answer before Dayton's became Macy's, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of evolved that way. Um, but I think that we have a we have a belief, you know, first of all, like we don't think of ourselves as e-commerce investors. We think of ourselves as commerce investors. Okay. I think of it very holistically. Okay. I think that, um, you know, malls came to be and really gained a lot of traction with the consumer in part because they delivered an experience that was better than what they'd ever had before. Mm -hmm. They brought entertainment to it. They brought kind of the combination of like food and and But now and we can hang out on our phones. And now it's evolved since then, right? Yeah. So, um, but the reality is, is that we also don't just want to spend all our time on the phones. If you really look at people's, for, for example, people's shopping behaviors even, it's, it's moving away from goods into services and experiences. And you know, I think that that's probably the result of you know many different things. But one of them is maybe people sitting in a room too much with technology <laughs> and wanting to get out and do things and engage yeah, with life and like engage with other people. And so in that context, like, what does you know? Why would somebody go to a store in the future? What are they looking for? What's the experience they want? They can buy anything they want online. So you used to have a store because you needed to have the store to close the transaction. Right. Now you don't need to. Because you have said retail is limited. There are limits to things that retail can compete on in terms of product yep. in terms of price. Yep. Is experience the only thing you believe now really that you can compete on? I think it's the most powerful thing. Okay. And I think everything else is like being excellent at it is table stakes. You gotta have a great product. You have to have a great product. Consumers are savvy. They're gonna see right through it. Mm -hmm. The only business that you know at Forerunner we want to be involved in or any business that's sustainable has a repeat business. So you can maybe coax somebody into buying something once, but unless it's good, unless the value proposition is good, they're not going to come back. So having a great product is just table stakes. It just gets you in the game. It doesn't get you the win. You know, price is not a great business model to compete on um, long term. It tends to be a race to the bottom on some level. And access... Thus, maybe Walmart's acquisition of Jet, for example. They've always been the price comp... Com com that's how they've competed before. They have. That's been their headline. But I think that it's way more than that. It's about, you know, they brought town center stores to, to being. And, um, you know, being able to shop under one roof with all, within all these departments and have an eye for value across all of those categories. If it had just been price, I don't know that it would be mm. so lasting. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, and, and, and just by definition of wanting to be involved in, in game-changing companies that can reach scale, access isn't something that we um, try to hold back, you know, this idea of exclusivity. We're thinking much more about how can we get more of whatever it is into people's hands in more places and more ways. So with all of that in mind, like, experience is something that you can really, you know, differentiate on and stand out on. And it's also the place that you can back up a great product with that builds loyalty. And in a world where people are increasingly busy, the bar is increasingly being raised mm -hmm. because it is good to be a consumer today. It the is. consumer is in charge. Totally. The consumer is in charge. The, you know, if the tables have shifted, and I don't know exactly when that happened, but it is clear. And um, you know, you got to deliver a great experience. Can you tell the story of Dollar Shave Club? That's you know, this is a company that sold for a billion dollars to the behemoth of, of Unilever. Yep. But when it came across your desk, you weren't so sure. What so sold you on? When it? I initially 
found, when I initially heard about it, it was in passing, without any materials or without a face behind the company. It was simply this idea of a monthly razor club. And I just, I think, you know, at a very high level, I thought, oh, that's a pretty low ticket item that you're going to then have to service with shipping and yeah. everything else to kind of build on this customer experience proposition. And there are huge, massive competitors Select. in the space. And sometimes people look at that and they think, you know, like where we did with Luxottica, like, hey, there's one big player in the space. Like, that's not good for anybody. Let's bring something else to the market. Um, and that's true, but those companies have big budgets. In particular with Gillette, it's like all geared towards one brand. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, you know, like it's not impossible, but in my mind, I'm like, I've got other fish to fry. <laughs> I can do other things. Um, so, you know, two days later, I had an opportunity to meet Michael um, in a group setting, and I got to hear his vision, his version of what he was building, mm. and I was immediately compelled. And he didn't lead with the story of, of razors and, you know, $7 products or dollar razors or whatever. He led with the story about a consumer, a consumer who's preferences had changed, um, a consumer whose shopping experience was failing them in these categories, mm -hmm. and his vision for making it better, um, and how that could fit into the ecosystem of, of brands and players in the space. And that was compelling to me, and he was compelling. So it's back to the person. Back to the people. It's back to the people. Back to the people. If you think about it, there are so many things that it takes to get a business off the ground and then to various mm -hmm. chapters of scale. And all of them have a, a common connection of needing to get resources, whether it's you know, the investor you're pitching yeah. across the table or the, management, the person that you want to join your management team or the consumer that you want to be in business mm -hmm. with. So this idea that like a founder can come at the conversation, the narrative with tons of passion and um, conviction and enough dreaminess married with practicality is important to all those constituents to jump mm -hmm. on board. And, you know, I think we, we place high value on that. So as we move on to the discussion of sexism in Silicon Valley, yep. because you've made headlines with me on that before, you actually have missed some big flops because you weren't even pitched. That's true. And they, do you believe they didn't come to you because you're a woman? I don't. I think, I think most of those ones, at least the ones that we're talking about in retrospect, happened when Forerunner was just getting off the ground. And, um, and I didn't have, you know, I didn't have yeah. a presence enough to see every pitch. You weren't on today, the time 100 if, list. Today, if something like that happened, you know, I, I would I'd blame ourselves. Huh. Like, why were huh. we not, in, you know, why did we not get a seat at the table in that conversation? So when I asked you about a year ago, sexism in Silicon Valley, is it real? You paused for a moment and you said, yes. And I want to know more about that and what you've seen in the last year. What's going on? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a really important conversation. It's also a tricky conversation to navigate. You know, I think that um, we started talking about it a little bit at, this, at the beginning of this interview, like why are the funding st stats yeah. so off? What's going on there? Um, I think that just the way we were referencing investors looking at entrepreneurs and looking for things that they're comfortable with or similarities, mm -hmm. I suspect that that happens amongst partnerships too. Um, it's kind of like, you know, how do you go about picking a partner? Where are you looking for complementary investors yeah. to, to kind of round out your team? And historically, I, you know, for, for, again, a handful of reasons, it's been geared much more towards men. Mm -hmm. And until you get some critical mass of, of women changing the conversation, like, kind of by definition, it ends up being a little bit sexist. Have I mean, you, you mentioned a man, a mentor of yours, yeah. who's been r really helpful yeah. to you through your career. Have you experienced it? Have you lived that 
sexism in your rise up? You know, Poppy, I think I would be naive if I answered that question no. I mean, I think I, 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 I'm, I'm sure I have. Just very candidly, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it. I didn't have time to think about it. You know, it's like the naysayers, the sexism, the, you know, whatever happens. It's like I can't give enough of that mind share and attention because I got other things like, to focus on that feel in. more productive to me. Hmm. Um, yes, there is a part of me that feels like I have to show up and be better and smarter wow. and, and et cetera, all those things. Um, and, you know, maybe that's not fair, but I'm, it is what it is a little bit, and um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing either. I mean, it is a bad thing that you're getting judged harder than other people, but that you're yourself feeling you like I got to show up in the harder. best version of myself, and you know, yeah. You know, um, Wall Street powerhouse Sally Krawcheck yeah. said recently that the diversity problem is not a product of bad people; it's a product of a comfort level yeah. and surrounding yourself with people like you. Yeah, and I thought that really struck me. Right. I think, I think that's true. You know, so I think we're, again, we're having more of this conversation. You're seeing, you're seeing women, you're seeing, you know, select, there's certainly not enough, but select partnerships have a woman involved. Um, you're seeing firms like, like ours and, and, and um, Cowboy Ventures, Aileen sure. and Aspect Ventures, right, like, you know, making Perkins. a name yep. for themselves. Like, hopefully this starts to get people aware of the fact that, like, female investors can be just women investors can be just as good as men investors in fact you know there's a whole there's a whole group of companies that we have an eye for maybe we understand better or we gravitate towards exactly. for some of the other reasons that other types of companies have been funded by males and that that's additive to the ecosystem and it's not about having one partner uh, you know one female representative partner it's really about kind of elevating and opening up that voice but maybe it takes one person to get in the door to start proving out that like you're just as valuable as a contributor of the, of the next team and then when they go out to look for the next partner there's a bit more open-minded to it yeah. then you get two people in you know I think you do need we do need to get closer to parity in order to really have like the appropriate voice and that's true in the in, in the investor partnerships that's true in the boardroom that's true in the c-suites um, it's just true so on a personal note, a few years ago when we first met and I was, you know, sort of working my way up in my field and I wanted to be a mom and have kids. I think I'd just gotten married. Yeah. But I was scared. Yeah. And we were talking about it. You're a mother of two and you were pregnant when your firm was, was really taking off. Yep. Um, I hate the question of work-life balance. For me, I've written about this. I don't. I don't think. I think balance is sort of an evil word. I totally. Don't think I, was, yeah. Do you agree? I don't I think do. it exists. For I me, do. it's melding. Yeah. Right. And sort of doing it as I can, where I can. Right. And trying to be the best at, at both. Right. Um, where do you fall on that right now? And what are your lessons for doing what you do professionally that fulfills you professionally and and your personal life that fulfills you? personally and your children. Right. I think a big part of it is kind of knowing who you are as a person and what fuels you and what makes you happy and what your priorities are and then trying to organize your life and your time around that. Because the reality is if you like what you're doing for a job, you're going to be better at it. If you are okay with the parent, you're, you know, if you're pleased with the parent you're being, you're going to do a better job at it. Showing up in those moments with, you know, the energy and the priority and the and the, you know, the for what for what you want to get out of it is really incredibly important. And that might look like, that, does, that can't necessarily be quantified in time. I think it's more about kind of what you're doing with the time that you do have. 
And one of the best lessons or biggest lessons that my children have taught me mm -hmm. is the power of being present. You know, people always talked about that. That was certainly like something that kind of on paper resonated with me. I don't know that I was ever very good at experiencing it myself. But like, you know, when you're coming to work, you've got a lot of work to do. I've got a finite amount of hours because I want to go home and spend time with them. And then when I go home with them, it's a finite amount of hours. It's not as much hours as I want. It's never as much, never. It's never as much time as I want on either side. So it's about making the most of it with the time that you do have. And I think this whole idea of like integrating your life is, is really, um, it's, 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 it's actually powerful. So I kind of equate it to, you know, I used to have a work phone, a home phone, and a cell phone oh person. I have one phone. Right? I have one phone. Yeah. You know, at some point I was like, wait a minute, this is just my life. Like, why do I have three different phones? I'm not three different types of people. I'm Kirsten and when I show up in all of these places, it's kind of is all melding together. There's no rules on when people can email me. Why yeah. are there rules on when my kids can need me? True. So are you open about it, Kirsten? I'm really interested because I've started being much more open and saying, no, I can't do that because I want to go home and be with my yeah, daughter. Yeah. Not, oh, I can't because I you know, have another commitment. I bring it into my work life and say, I can't do that. Or I turned, I, uh, turned down a charity event that I was invited to last night saying, I'm sorry, I have to travel for three days. I want to be at home this night with my daughter. Right. Are you, you know, I, but it's not always comfortable to say that. I think it's getting more comfortable to say it, though, as people are realizing that you really, you know, that there are benefits of integrating your life like that and really thinking about we all have choices to make about our time, about who we're interacting with, about what things we're pursuing. I want to be around people who value their families. That's a trait I admire and something mm -hmm. I respect. Why then would I, you know, not be respectful of the fact that they've been on the road for three nights, they can't go to this work event because they need to be home and see their kids. Yeah. Like, I kind of question whether if they didn't want to do that, you know, on the other side. So, That's a great point. I mean, is I think... The world is the work world changing in that way, in a, better, in a better way for not just we as women, but for men too, do you think? My sphere that I'm operating in does. And maybe that's because, like, I place value on it, and so I continue to kind of surround myself with people that. But I'd like to think it's more than that. And, yeah, I, I know plenty of guys who will say, you know, I, I, I've, had, I've been in board meetings with people who say, like, I can't, I have to leave at this time because I need to get home, I need to catch that flight home to be home for my kids, X, Y, and Z. And people are like, oh, yeah, you got to do that. I mean, I think if you are not showing up when, if you're, not, if you're shirking your responsibilities and not showing up sure. and then using, you know, whatever else you're doing, people will feel like, oh, you're really not committed to it. Yeah. But if you are committed to, you know, if you're other, if, if you, if you do show up for your commitments and one of your commitments is to your family and to your life and to your own personal health, like, that's just integrated into the mix. Mm -hmm. That's where we need to go, particularly with the fact that, like, there are no, there are, the barriers of work are getting broken down and broken down. It is not a nine-to-five work day. Mm -hmm. You don't show up at work and, like, check your voicemail and then start to go. I mean, I get emails at nine o'clock at night, at of ten o'clock, at four in the morning. I mean, it just, it happens, so. So now you have been named to Times 100 list of most influential people at a very young age. How do you think about what is next for you? And do you think, okay, I've made it? Or is there so much more yet? Oh, to no, there's so much more. <laughs> there's so much more to do on all fronts. You know, I think, okay, just getting back practically to Forerunner, I think what's the evolution that's uh, ahead of us in retail is really just starting to kind of take some accelerated shape. So I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for that. I think I'm really energized by the people I get to work with and the opportunities that that creates, not only for new investment companies, but for growing our team at Forerunner and what we're doing there. 
Um, I'm getting increasingly interested in this conversation about 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 being a woman in business and what that means. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and, you, and, I, and I'm also like you know I was today today is this day that is called Get to Fifty Fifty. Have you heard about this? No. Yeah. So there's this movement, Get to Fifty Fifty. Tiffany Schlein did this video on it. She has like a really positive spin on kind of the arc of women's history and the mm -hmm. story and the role that we play. I like that positive spin. I think it's great. And it talks about being a mentor. It talks about kind of we need people need role models. They need to feel like there's those opportunities for them. They need to have people that will stick up for them. I want to be part of that. Do you invest deliberately more in female-run companies because there is a lack of parity? Poppy, we invest in the best entrepreneurs, the people that are like the best position to bring to life the companies that they invest. I, the honest answer to that question is, we've never invested in a male, we've never invested in a female. Mm. We've just invested in the right entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And that being said, um, we have almost 40% of our portfolio founders are females. Kirsten Green, congratulations and thank you. Thank you, Poppy, for thank having me. Thank you so me. much. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.